Hello there, and welcome to the Mock Rock. Oh, wait, hold on. Ah, <laughs> the Based Edge Podcast. Nice. Welcome, nice. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Mock, your host, as well as my other my co-host, uh, Joe Joey Emilio Mio. from the Joe Emilio Podcast. And I'm Mock Rock from the Mock Rock Show. Um, yeah, Joe, uh, hate speech. It's finally happening. We're finally having the conversation. It's been, what, like almost a month and a half of waiting. <laughs> Yes, uh, our advocate that we wanted to speak to was uh, inundated, you know, with a lot of stuff, um, and uh, I was also procrastinating. So <laughs> I chatted to him uh, briefly, and he said he's keen. So uh, we've got a very knowledgeable and probably famous now uh, advocate joining us tonight. Uh, but before we get into that, let's not forget, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to also subscribe to the Apple Podcast, Spotify. Um, and if you're listening to this, whether it be on your way to work or maybe you're listening to this during work or maybe you're listening to this before you go to bed, don't forget to also check out our YouTube channel where you can see us visually. We're also on Rumble and we got pretty things happening on our screen and you can see the face of the guest as well uh, joining us and you can see uh, Mork's ugly face and laugh at it all the time <laughs> to make you feel better. Um, so, so yes, uh, do follow us on all the social media platforms. Links are in the description. And also, uh, Mork and I, like Mork said, we have our own uh, YouTube channel, as well as our guest also has his own YouTube channel. We'll let him punt that towards the end of the show. If you want to check out our all our YouTube channels, just go to the link in the description and check us out. And uh, very quickly, one more thing. Our last episode exploded, uh, which was about the uh, white... Zimbabwean, Mrs. Zimbabwean who, who won. So if you haven't checked that episode out yet, go check it out. Some based views were had. And I think the comment section was lit. Um, <laughs> but anyway, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into the topic tonight. We're going to be talking about does hate speech exist? That's going to be the overall theme of tonight. And we brought in... You needed, you needed help. That's why you brought him in. Couldn't have this debate alone with me. <laughs> well, like we mentioned no, kidding, in the in, no, but that's a good point. In in the Julius Malema episode that we did, we said we're going to do an episode on hate speech, and we're going to get a lawyer in who knows yeah. the law, because that's the best way to really get into yes. the debate. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, the one, the only, Mister Mark Oppenheimer joins us. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Hello. I must say, like, it is a pleasure once again to have you uh, join us, uh, well, join, to chat to you, because I've chatted to you on my channel, um, and it's always a pleasure chatting to you, uh, Mark. Um, I'm very excited about the conversation we're going to have tonight. So, you guys want to know what hate speech is and whether it exists? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, I've got, I mean, I, I, let me give you my position. Like, this is sort of, I've, I've said it before, I'm a free speech absolutist. I reject the concept of hate speech as it is as a legal punishable crime because government has decided some words are offensive and also due to the fundamental basis that sort of hate speech is sub subjective. That's sort of the premise. Again, and just to preface that, I think um, I don't think like uh, uh, what's it, incitement to violence or call to action, that's not protected under like under free speech per se, but I think anything else should go. That's and my sort of position. My position is that it does exist. Um, there is words can hurt. Um, I understand the concept of, you know, 
one man's insult might not be another man's insult. I get that. Um, and there's like a fine line with it, but I do think that there is a societal influence that dictates or at least influences how people think and how people feel. So when certain words are said, like the N word or the K word, for example, for some people, it does create hurt. It does uh, affect them in a certain way because of their past or what have you, um, or maybe the way they were brought up, we don't know. So I do think that in that regard, uh, hate speech does exist. I just, I'm still impartial or not sure of how far the government should implement that because I do believe that the law has its problems, but you are someone who knows the law very well, so maybe you can enlighten us. Cool, it's nice to have a sense of where you guys see the debate. Um, and I suppose the first position is to say, Mark's clearly not a free speech absolutist. Um, he accepts that there should be yeah. some limitations on speech. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we want to ask ourselves, well, why? In other words, you think words can do something in the world. So the cases you've given are the incitement to harm cases. And you think, well, that's a reason to prohibit the speech or punish the speech. Now, I'll give you a sense of what the legal landscape looks like, and I'm going to talk about Joe's use of the term hurtful words. Um, I was involved in a case called Quilani. Um, so I acted for the journalist John Quilani, who'd written an article in 2008 um, where he'd said, I pray for the day when politicians will have the balls to change those parts of the Constitution that allow a man to marry a man and ditto women. And uh, in the original trial, he was held liable for hate speech. Um, on the grounds that uh, it was hurtful uh, to the gay community. Um, some evidence was led about people who had um, been offended by the words um, and of problems of corrective rape uh, in that community. I acted for him on appeal uh, at the SCA uh, and at the Constitutional Court, and the SCA um, held that the test that was used, which comes not from the Constitution but from something called the Equality Act, uh, was unconstitutional. So... What the Constitution says is that you've got these very large free speech rights. Um, they include artistic creativity, academic inquiry, freedom of the press, um, and there are really only three instances where the speech is not protected. So in other words, where it's not part of your free speech right. So the one is propaganda for war, uh, the second, the incitement of imminent violence, and the third, the hate speech clause, which is advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, gender, ethnicity, and religion, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. So the Supreme Court of Appeal said, well, the test that's used in Papuda is much broader than that in the Equality Act. So it used the term uh, hurtful speech, and it also included uh, many more grounds besides the four listed in the Constitution, including sexual orientation, but also things like uh, language, nationality, birth, marital status, uh, whether you were pregnant. Um, and the court then declared the act unconstitutional went on further appeals to the Constitutional Court, and the Constitutional Court came up with a mid-position. So it said the act is unconstitutional, that um, hurtful speech uh, is protected speech, um, in terms of legally protected speech. Um, and part of what we've sort of seen echoing through our case law in the constitutional era is really this idea that people are going to say things that are offensive and they are shocking, um, but they are nonetheless protected. So hurtful speech was scrapped. What you then had was to, to include in the test two things. The one is to retain that incitement to cause harm. So when you're calling on people to perform a harm against one of the targeted groups. 
and then whether the words themselves are harmful. Now, this is where things kind of get muddy. So one of the questions is, what's the difference between hurtful speech and harmful speech? Well, hurtful was meant to refer to kind of like emotional offense, um, a temporary feeling that you have, a feeling of anger or shame or sadness, but that kind of dissipates. Whereas harmful speech, you'd think, well, it causes some deep psychological trauma, the kind of thing that you need to substantiate with evidence. Um, so you might want evidence from a psychologist showing that the speech has actually caused some kind of deep psychological harm that requires treatment like PTSD, a much higher level. Um, so the Constitutional Court created that test. They ultimately held that Kralani's article did amount to hate speech, um, and they uh, included all the additional grounds as well. So not just the four within the Constitution, um, but sexual orientation and the others. And the reason that they were able to do that is we have a thing in our Constitution called the limitations analysis, where you can limit rights, provided that it's reasonable and justifiable to do so in an open and democratic society. So there's an acknowledgement that you're limiting free speech rights, um, but there was only so far they were willing to limit the rights. So that gives you a sense of where the landscape looks like legally. And the question is, well, now we've got these principles, we should know where we're going. Are they always applied? You know, do the courts get it right? Do they use those principles? Is there a concern that some groups get protection and others don't? Um, you have statements from the Human Rights Commission basically saying that they would um, go easier on um, black offenders than white offenders, um, that it would matter who the targeted group is. Those things are alarming um, because our one of the fundamental principles in our constitution is the idea of equality before the law and of non-racialism. So the idea that we don't judge people um, based on the color of their skin, but rather on the content of their character. We don't have different rules for different races. So there is a hate speech case, um, which I was also involved in, um, uh, for the Human Rights Commission versus Velapi Kamala. So I acted with the Human Rights Commission there. Velapi had said, we should do to white people what Hitler did to the Jews. They should be burnt alive, hacked to death, and their children turned into garden fertilizer. Um, now, Velapi was held liable for hate speech, and in the judgment, um, it's made very clear that we don't have different rules for different races, that all are equal before the law, um, and that it doesn't matter whether you're part of uh, an ascendant group or a marginalized group, um, that you know, we're going to treat everybody like an agent and hold them accountable. Uh, so that gives you a sense of what some of the legal landscape looks like. Um, now... There's a couple of other things that you might want to consider. So the one is, Joe talked about, you know, if you're using racial epithets against people, it's hurtful nonetheless, right? Um, now the question is, what do you want to do about it? Do you think there should be criminal sanctions? So that's one sort of extreme version. The other one is, what the Equality Act has is not criminal sanctions, but civil sanctions. So you can be required to make an apology, pay a fine, um, pay damages to someone, or you can just have um, social opprobrium. So I imagine that if you go around referring to people in your workplace through racial epithets, that there will be consequences for that. People might not want to talk to you. You might get fired from your job. Um, you know, you might get boycotted online. Uh, that doesn't involve the state. Um, and so you can think that there are other methods to deal with speech that you don't like. I feel like that was a very, very long lawyer answer. For no, basically no, no. saying, it depends on each case. <laughs> no, no, but I, I think I think I agree with you. Like the whole the concept of like 
there because I mean a lot of times when people say like listen there should be complete free speech you're not you're not you're not uh, what do you call it um, you're not free from consequences for example like your example where if I had to go around work using racial epithets to my co-workers there's going to be consequences the difference is it's not legal consequences not the law stepping in for words that are sort of hurtful you know what I mean and yeah I just it's like I mean, you get, I think also like maybe it's because of the like the stuff we do doing online stuff. You kind of we only see the one sided. I mean, I was reading going through. I think it was the South African Human Rights Commission's page and just going like, there's you know five cases against you know mainly white people, and then there's you know one case for Julius where they found well the people you referred to, and then they go into sort of that intersectional vibe of well it's people who are historically disadvantaged and that goes to your point because like if you had to if you had if like with them deciding to take a case based on well this is pe people have previously you're not basing you know the law isn't it's not equality under the law that's like you've got special treatment for special people which is weird and it's like the people who are the people that's taking on these cases i mean if say for example if somebody like, I mean, I was, I think on Sunday, I had a, somebody telling me to, you know, they want to massacre my, my family or my race. I'm going like, okay, I, I couldn't care about it. But I mean, who would take on that? I would, if I wanted to prosecute them, I would have to hire a lawyer like yourself and then make a case against them. But the opposite happens. You've got the human rights, South African Human Rights Commission jumping on board and they're going, okay, cool. We're going to take this case. We're going to, you know, get it funded and we're going to sue the person who said a mean thing to you, which is sort of that that's the sort of weird part how we see the landscape i mean is that sort of true is it like is that happen a lot or is that sort of just just how we're viewing it yes yeah, so there is some analysis uh on on where the hate speech cases go and where the complaints are received and which ones are prosecuted which ones aren't solidarity did a study i think in 2016 where they found that um the human rights commission tended to go after people who were white where the victims were black um, and tended not to do that in the reverse. Although, of course, I've just given you the example of Valapi Kamalo where I acted for the Human Rights Commission against Valapi, um, him being black and the victims being white. Um, so you're right that you have a situation where, you know, given that the commission has the power to go and institute in its own name or on behalf of others, and that it's a, you know, chapter nine institution, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a sort of public... Uh, organ of state yeah. that you want it to act in a manner that accords with the rule of law uh, that it's fairly doing so and that it's not really picking sides in terms of uh, who the targets are who the perpetrators are that it just says let's go and look at the hate speech test and apply it fairly um, and there's obviously a concern and it opens itself up to criticism if it's not doing that um, the alternatives aren't just doing it in your own name you do find organizations who act on behalf of others so afri forum for example um, yeah. have been in the hate speech arena. Um, and so there you have a civil society um, organization running cases on that line. Um, and, and you can do it privately. The other kind of speech we haven't really talked a bit about is uh, the breach of the Riders Assemblies Act. So that's when you call on people to commit a crime. Um, so there, Julius was prosecuted for calling on people to invade um, land, um, yeah. trespass being a crime, and so calling people to commit that crime as itself a crime. He challenged the statute um, and was ultimately unsuccessful. So um, the Rice Assemblies Act was held to be constitutional by the Constitutional Court. Um, but that litigation hasn't gone anywhere. 
So the NPA didn't persist in their prosecution. So there's another sense in which, you know, there's a worry that the prosecuting authority isn't acting, um, you know, in an unbiased manner. Um, there's also a concern that, you know, Julia sits on the Judicial Services Commission and plays a role in the appointment of judges. Um, that a particular judge uh, had filed against them in a defamation suit. Um, it involved, um, I think Trevor Manuel had sued Julius, that the judge then held him liable for half a million rand. Uh, he then sought elevation. Um, in other words, he's a high court judge and he wanted to go to the Supreme Court of Appeal. And Julius said to him, why should I elevate you uh, given what you did to me? Um, so you have this naked bias. Uh, Parliament said to Julius, you need to apologize for doing that. It's a very unparliamentary thing to do. So, of course, he took Parliament to court to interdict the apology and was successful. That amounts to bringing the judiciary into disrepute. Hypocrite! So what's interesting, of course, about South Africa is that we have high levels of transparency. So these things are all videoed. You know, you get a sense of, you know, you can access court records, you can find out what happens. Um, and you can sort of see the sausage being made and some of the, the sausage is quite ugly. <laughs> the sausage being made. That's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, sorry, just a, just kind of a quick off-topic question. I've always been, I'm not really familiar with this, but like, like for some, I was told by, well, I mean, the understanding I have is like, and this is sort of a, a you know, as a lawyer question. For example, taking Zuma, right? So Zuma was in court and then there was, there was another case and another case. So if I understand it correctly, how does the legal system work? It's like if you appeal a specific court case or a specific thing, that new court case stacks on top of that and then they just keep stacking. It almost feels like from as a viewer watching this happen, it feels like these court cases just seem to stack. And because of the process of how long it takes, it's like we're never – because, I mean, like the initial case for, for Jacob Zuma was, uh, you know, corruption – that was the whole different thing. The the was it the, yes, like the three year inquiry? Yeah, yeah. That whole vibe, and then it led to this. But it's almost like, is, is that the process? Is we just we just stack cases, and then you got to deal with the newest one first to eventually get down. It, can they not then use this tactic if it is so to just? I mean, by the time they actually get to his case, he'll Zuma will be dead. You know. Okay, let me try and provide you a bit of clarity on that. So with Zuma, he's a complicated uh, individual because you've got. Cases running in parallel, so there might be a series of different cases that are running through the courts, uh, and the way they're reported is the Zuma litigation, um, yeah. but they're non-related to each other. Um, so, for example, you know, Zuma was held to be in contempt of court by the Constitutional Court. That's different from the um, arms deal cases. You know, it's, it's totally oh, parallel. Yeah. Okay, but then you can have, as you say, the appeal court situation. So, let's say you run a trial and you're unsuccessful, so now you appeal. So what you have to do is you ask that trial judge, um, will, you allow, will you allow me to go to another court? Um, because I think another court would find differently. So that judge can oh, say okay. yes or no. Um, if they say no, then what you do is you petition the Supreme Court of Appeal and you say, look, this judge said no. I think I've got a reasonable prospect of success. Will you entertain me? That court can say yes or no. If they say no, then you can petition the Constitutional Court. You'll notice that... Um, this is what happened with the EFF recently. Um, there was a finding that they were interdicted um, from calling people to invade land by AfriForum, okay, in 2017. Um, because there was other litigation that I'd mentioned about them challenging the constitutionality of the Right Assemblies Act, um, the sort of interdict uh, was practically paused. So 
They then sought leave to appeal because they'd lost in the high court. The All the other courts said no. They said, you've got no prospects of success, and the constitutional court has ultimately said that as well. Um, so, and I think those matters are without hearings. So they basically, the other courts have said, well, there's no point in entertaining your appeal, you're dead. Um, and, all the, and the constitutional court just went all the way up. And that happened reasonably quickly because that, um, that original judgment was in 2017. So some cases are quick. I mean, often it's, there's, there's quick for lawyers and there's quick for normal people. You know, business people often go, you know, this thing should happen tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and our cases that I run where it happens not just tomorrow but in a few hours. So I run cases, for example, where um, a body corporate's power is cut off by a municipality unfairly and you've got hundreds of people who have um, no power and they're sort of at risk of, you know, people invading their houses because the, like, the gates don't work. Um, and so we go to court within a few hours and we get the electricity yeah. turned back on. Um, the Kualani litigation, he wrote his article in 2008. Um, ultimately, judgment came out in 2022. So you get a sense wow. of the difference in how long things can take to get resolved. All right. Um, just just trying to get back to the whole topic Sorry. at hand here. Um, hate speech, right? So you gave us a, a, um, a, I don't know, you, the lay of the land, if I could put it that way, uh, for, for, there's a lot of lawyer speak. Order. Um, <laughs> For, for what the law says hate speech is, and like you said, you were part of a, a, a case, quite important one. What about the case you were a part of? I don't know if you can talk about it. Um, you said that there was a, a, a bill that was aiming to, to be changed. I don't know if you remember, we spoke about it on my channel at the time. The, I think it was the hate speech bill or something like that. And it was going to be changed to be more ambiguous towards uh, what exactly hurts you like words hurt you so what was the outcome that you win that did you yes it's an ongoing question so the hate speech bill has been floating around since 2016 the first version of the bill just so you know i don't want to use too much jargon a bill is basically a proposal for a law um if it's at the bill stage it has it doesn't operate um so you can see bills floating around that have crazy language in them uh there are things to be worried about if they were to become law so it becomes law once it's an act and it's signed into operation. Hate speech bill that comes out in 2016. It comes out very opportunistically. It's sort of around the time of the Penny Sparrow debacle. Um, initially, it's greeted with massive applause from journalists who go, this is wonderful. It's going to end racism. Um, and then they realized, oh, a whole bunch of us are going to wind up in prison for the ordinary things that we write. And so they rallied together uh, to stop the bill. That escalated quickly. It then kind of died a quiet death for a while until resurfacing in 2018 um, and is now still debated. It's gone through many, many rounds of changes. Um, it's had to take into account Kualani as well because that's the sort of case that um, has determined what our hate speech law looks like. But there is this concern, which is that the way the Equality Act works is that there are no criminal sanctions. So as I say, you can be made to apologize, you can pay a fine, but you can't go to jail because of the Equality Act. If you've also committed a crime in, in your speech, then the Equality Court can refer you to prosecution, but then it's a separate criminal matter. One of the things that matters as well is that in civil proceedings, it's beyond, it's a balanced probabilities. So kind of 51% are you liable. Um, and in a criminal setting, um, it's beyond reasonable doubt. So kind of like 90%. There's also some stuff, you've talked a little bit about objective and subjective. So the way it works in the Equality Act is that we say, well, really, would a reasonable person think that the words um, 
demonstrate your intention to incite harm or be harmful. Okay. That's the sort of test. So it's an objective thing. We don't ask, what did you mean by the words? If you sort of say, well, I didn't mean it that way, that's not a defense. Okay. Typically in criminal cases, the idea is that your intent matters. Um, so what you were thinking at the time matters. Now, often we've got to divine that from your words. And so there's a kind of very subtle distinction between these things. But ultimately, we, we tend to think that your direct intent matters. If I, like, for example, said like to you, uh, Mark, you're, you're, you're Jewish. It's not a secret. Yeah. Um, like. Easy now, Joe. <laughs> 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 uh, I do have to be careful because of YouTube. Your Honor. I'll allow it. But basically, if I said kill the Jews, uh, you know, like a fellow politician does in South Africa, different kind of race, um, is that where you guys question, like, you'd obviously take me to court because it's like that would probably fall under the hate speech thing. And you would then try and understand the intent of what I meant by that. It, yeah, would, nice, and, nice and would it be like if I said, well... Um, you already said that if I say, you know, well, I didn't mean it like that, that doesn't count. But if I said like, well, it doesn't come from a place of hate, it comes from, you know, it's just like, uh, something I felt at the time, but I didn't mean that I really want to take Jews to the gas chambers. Like, how would you really determine intent? Yes. So, all right. So let's think about, yeah, let's think about that example and we'll sort of play around with the words and the context. So let's say we say it's it's there's no factual dispute that Joe said uh, kill the Jews. Okay, now yeah. you can imagine you're standing on a stage in front of a bunch of neo Nazis and you're Zig Heiling and you're saying kill the Jews. Okay, <laughs> clear what the intent is. I mean that really got out of hand fast. Man, but, wokes are gonna yeah. have a field day now, man. <laughs> Look at it. That's gonna be tough. About World War Two. Okay, and you say that. You know, we should be really worried about uh, anti-Semitism. Let me tell you what happened during yeah. the Holocaust. There were Nazis who said, kill the Jews, and that's condemnable. Okay. Yeah. So there what you're doing is you're reporting on someone else's hate speech. And it's pretty clear, given the context, that your intent is not to call for the killing of Jews. It's to denounce it. Okay. Um, we can imagine that uh, there's some uh, work of fiction that you're writing where the term is used as well and it's clear that that's not your intent as an author it's words you put in a character's mouth all that stuff's going to make a difference um generally when we think about let's say someone has a, a someone is driving a car and they run over someone and that person dies um, we want to know what is their mental states okay so were they drunk in which case they couldn't have had an intent um but they were clearly negligent by driving drunk the other one is that um they were uh, uh, deliberately trying to kill that person. So it's a revenge killing. They say, you know, um, I saw you sleeping with my wife and I you know, saw you on the road and I, and I intend to kill you. Okay. So the, the facts that what we see in the world looks identical, but we go and peer into the mental states to determine, well, is this a crime? Uh, what kind of crime is it? Is it culpable homicide? Is it murder? But um, now what if, sorry, what if I claim, okay, when I said it, I said it, but I was drunk. Now, how, isn't that like a loophole now? Like, I feel like, like, how do you have to prove, do I have to prove that I was drunk? Yes. So there's different kinds of presumptions in our law um, and different kinds of onuses. So what in a criminal setting, what you've got to do is say that the person had the intention, had the requisite mental states, that they um, 
caused the harm and that they did it in a manner that was a breach of the law, it was wrongful. Um, and so you might say, well, it seems apparent to us that you you, you said the words um, and uh, you know it caused the harm and now the onus has shifted to you and you can say, well, look, I did say the words, but I had you know just taken three tabs of acid and I had no idea what planet I was on and the stuff came out of my mouth, sure, but it wasn't causally connected to me. I had no mental states, you know, that were putting that into, you know, putting that there, and so that would be a good criminal defence. Yeah, there's there's some cases you get these cases with epileptics and driving. So one case is someone is they're driving and uh, they lose control of their body due to an epileptic fit, and they kill someone. Okay, and they're acquitted on the grounds that they they couldn't have intended to have caused they didn't have control of their bodies. Second case where someone an epileptic does it. Okay. Uh, and is convicted. I said, well, how can you have this difference? They said, well, the second epileptic knew that they had these fits, and they knew that they could take a medication that would stop them, and they did it. Oh, okay. So they reconciled themselves to the idea that my driving could lead to someone's death. So you kind of get that dolus eventualis, um, you know, reminds you of the Oscar case style intention. So, you know, there was okay, so it's, it's, that, you know. it's very complicated, actually, uh, to get... I mean, even if, if you're accused of doing hate speech, it can get quite complicated to to be prosecuted, um, as we've seen with previous cases and some of the examples we've used now. But I think also what's important to get into here is, does it exist? Now, you, Mark, as a lawyer, um, or sorry, advocate, um, I know you fight for, you fight the good fight, man. I loved you in the in the Julius trial. I really did. But I gotta know. I, I gotta know. Do you think it exists? Do you like from a personal? Take yourself. I don't know if you're allowed to say it, but like, take yourself out of the advocate world, on on just a philosophical. But what, what do you what do you mean when you when you ask him like does HP exist or do you believe that it should exist like the, the we should have laws based on words that are harmful. Or words that can yeah, okay. you know, make people feel emotionally pain, emo you know, be offended by. Is, is that use what you that mean? question? Yeah, use that question. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do have a personal view on it. Um, I think we should protect speech as far as possible, um, so that you should protect um, offensive speech. One of the reasons why you should protect offensive speech is that um, often people can be mistaken about what is true. They can hold a view that uh, is viewed as offensive. So, for example, um, for most of human history, people thought the idea of gay marriage was either incomprehensible uh, or disgusting um, or the kind of thing that should be illegal, right? And there were some people who dared to express the offensive view that two men ought to be allowed to marry each other. And eventually, they managed to persuade a lot of people of the truth of that view. Um, and you have had global change aligned for gay marriage. You've had similar kinds of revolutions in thinking regarding the abolition of slavery, um, removing segregation or um, interracial marriage. So these were all things that were seen as offensive at some point in time. And so it's very important to allow someone to say the offensive thing. Um, so it's unclear whether some things are objectively offensive. In other words, is everybody offended by it? Is that sufficient? Is it there's some unwritten law in the universe that determines the thing is, um, is offensive? Or is it just a subjective feeling that sort of shifts over time? Um, I think offense as I say should be protected and you might have reasons not to be offensive in certain settings so you know in other words we don't want the law to step in and prohibit it 
But we think that when you're having uh, dinner with grandma over Thanksgiving turkey, uh, you know, that you might not want to, uh, you know, say to her, this is the worst turkey I've ever had in my life. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, you know, you have some politeness reason not to say that kind of yeah. stuff, right? But we don't want to punish you for it. Then the question is, what kinds of speech should we prohibit? Um, I think it's pretty obvious to me that um, if you are instructing someone to perform an assassination, um, that we want to prohibit that kind of speech. It's just words. And there are some true free speech absolutists who just go, we just punished the guy who pulled the trigger. The fact that you told him to do it, that you um, you know invite him to do it, or that you st- stood in front of the chanting a mob chanting and saying, you know, kill this guy, burn him alive, and they did it. Well, we punished them. It's not your fault. Um, my view is you can punish both. Um, but hold now, on, I want to, I want to, I want to actually talk about that because that is an excellent, excellent. But we've seen this even with the Julius Malema thing uh, when it comes to kill the boar on social media. So many people are saying like, and and not just EFFers, I'm just like people who believe, like to the death that um, you know we should just have absolute free speech. Um, no matter how bad it is, no matter, because again, like you just said, it's just because, you know, somebody that I don't know happened to hear me and then pulled the trigger. That's not really my fault. It's just words. So on a philosophical level, Mark, what, at what point is it just words? You know what I mean? Like, I I do see the point there as well. Like in a way, the the libertarian in me is like, yeah, it would be nice to just say whatever the fuck I want to say. You know what I mean? Like, that'd be great. And no consequences. Why? I can I can get that. Like, I'll, you know, I can't say it on YouTube, but, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, just go out and do whatever you want to do, right? You listening right now, just, you see that person, give them a huge ass kiss. I can't be held liable if they, if they do that or not, but I don't know. What, what's your philosophical view on that? Like, why, why? Why should there be a limitation there? Yeah, so if you look at what the Constitution says, um, the idea is that there's a difference between the incitement of imminent violence, okay? So there's a difference between standing in front of the angry mob who've got their their pitchforks ready to kind of like burn the Mozambican guy alive, something that's really happened in South Africa, because it's imminent, and there's a very good chance that the harm will result, versus slowly saying things that may cause harm to result in the future. And the idea is you might say, well... Um, there's a, there's room for people to kind of you know inject their own thoughts um, to counter the hatred with more words, um, but we basically say we don't need that imminent test when it comes down to hatred against particular groups, um, and I think part of that is given our own history, um, given that there's there's certain groups who do seem more vulnerable, that there are a history of people being killed because of their race or because of their sex, uh, because of their nationality, and that it might be harder to, to deal with that merely with counter dialogue. Um, but again, I think it makes a difference what your sanction is. So in other words, are you jailing the person? Um, and this is, we got a little bit sidetracked, but the hate speech bill will now criminalize hate speech. Um, and so you're suddenly in a different arena where you can get eight years in jail versus merely having to apologize. And there, one of the difficulties that we have is that Kualani says, well, we'll tolerate this idea of um, punishing speech or prohibiting speech that's harmful as opposed to incitement to harm. Now, you might think that's okay in the civil arena, but not okay in the criminal arena. In other words, when we're trying to work out, well, is the speech harmful or not, um, you really want to be able to ramp up what that means 
or say, no, we've got to stick by the strict constitutional standard if it's only these incitement harm cases. For example, um, the old South African flag is has been determined by the Supreme Court of Appeal to be hate speech. Now, you're dealing with a symbol. Okay? Now, a lot of people would say it's merely offensive. Uh, they'll say it causes emotional distress, people don't like it, but it's not like you've got evidence of someone saying, look, I had PTSD and I had to go to a psychologist when I saw it. There's this sense in which you could have a, a double standard um, that, that emerges, and the idea of people being thrown in jail for you know, showing um, offensive symbols should remind us of what happened during apartheid when people who you know had ANC flags on their cups got jailed. Um, and it seems like you don't want to go back to those dark days. You know? well, is, is, is the Nazi flag banned? In South Africa, it's not. Um, so In Germany, do you know? Yes. yes. Uh, in Germany, yes. And in Austria, yes. But there are still... So it's done to legislation. Uh, it details all the instances in which you can use it and which you can't use it. Um, one of the... Uh, exceptions was in the in the use of art. Captain Klinsendorf, Heil Hitler. 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 And there was a long debate about whether video games constituted art. So, for example, the game uh, Wolfenstein, um, the the game that's normally made available to people, has oh, yeah. Nazis with swastikas, and you go and hunt Hitler. Have you taken your German lessons? Take your camera. The German version of that game, they changed the symbol and they removed Hitler's moustache. Um, and uh, they recently changed the view on that. Um, and so they recognize video games as art and so they're Wolfenstein and now nice swastikas in it. So the context seems to matter. Um, I, I take the view as, as a Jewish South African whose grandparents escaped Nazi Germany that I think it is a good thing that we don't ban the swastika. So I'll explain what I mean. Um, I think you're doing an incredibly despicable thing if you wave a swastika around in a way to inflame hatred. Okay, totally. Um, but in South Africa, we almost never see anyone do it. Uh, it's it's really the kind of thing that's happened only a few times over the last two decades that you see a swastika scrawled anywhere. Now, the advantage of that is that Mork did it last weekend, so I'll send you, I'll send you the invite next time. You sit on a throne of lies. Um, we get a sense of what the appetite is for anti-Semitism in South Africa because it's not illegal. So you can monitor those people. They're giving you free information. They're telling you we're hate mongers who don't like Jews, and you know how many of them there are. Uh, if they do it as well, you've got other opportunities to change their mind. So, for example, the um, former head of the WITS um, SRC um, had made a series of anti-Semitic statements where he said he's a friend of Hitler. Um, and what the Jewish Board of Deputies did was they said, look, you know, we think you've said this out of some sense of ignorance. So we invite you to come to the um, Holocaust and Genocide Center. Um, he went and he said, I didn't really know what I was saying. I'm incredibly sorry for what I said. Um, and that can play a role in getting other people to change their minds. Um, one of the people who are, you both might be aware of who's done an incredible job on this front is um, Megan Phelps Roper. So she was a member of the Westboro Baptist Church. The church is best oh. known for holding up signs saying God hates fags um, and um, celebrating the deaths of American soldiers. They would also um, picket at funerals. So they went to um, the the funerals of uh, children who were killed during the Sandy Hook massacre. They would go to funerals of American soldiers who'd been killed during Iraq and they would hold up these signs. Um, and she grew up in the church um, and part of her job 
was to really spread their message online. So she would be on Twitter, you know, spreading all sorts of vile, bigoted views. Um, and people started debating her. And well, they changed her mind ultimately by pointing out some of the contradictions within her own belief system. And ultimately she left the church and now spends an enormous amount of time um, trying to deprogram people who have fought with hate. Uh, and doing it as someone who says, I was once uh, an insider in one of these movements, and I understand how it works, and I understand how you could believe this stuff. Let me explain to you why it's wrong. Um, that's enormously powerful, and that's because you've got free speech. There's a famous case um, where the church was picketing one of these funerals, and they were taken taken to court and sued for it and held liable for $10 million. And ultimately, the American Supreme Court said, you got to allow this kind of speech. Um, people are going to say things that are really offensive, and... Um, but if you prohibit it and have these, you know, make them liable, uh, it's going to clamp down on the arena. And so as much as you can think the speech is despicable, you might think it ought not to be legally prohibited. Yeah, I agree. With, I, I totally agree with that. But uh, so, so I had a question for you. So, I mean, like we were talking about the whole flag. I mean, so the reason the Nazi flag is, is illegal in Germany was because of the Holocaust and because of what Hitler did, right? Then how come the communist flag isn't? Because that's like, that's almost... A hundred times more deaths, hundred to hundred and sixty million people. Somehow we've got organizations like it, it's that's this weird thing about it that it's like you know this thing is bad, the old South African flag is bad. Yet here's this thing that is just it's ultimately worse than all of them combined. But it's like it's totally fine because well, of the ideology of the government. Here's an interesting thing. I think a lot of people don't know this, but the Germans don't just prohibit the swastika; they prohibit communist symbols as well. So. No, yeah, so East Germany was occupied by the Soviets, and the way that they phrase the legislation is that they talk about the symbols of the oppressive regimes. So there's a case of a guy, it's cited as Vajnai, a guy who had a communist star um, and was prosecuted for, for wearing the star. Um, so in South Africa, as you say, like people, you know, very happy to wave communist symbols around. We have the South African Communist Party. As you say, it's, you know, communism is. Uh, you know, caused 100 million deaths around the world, you know, um, sort of tens of millions by the Soviet Union and 60 million in China. It's a really yeah. evil system. Um, but yeah, those symbols are banned in Germany. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those things that's maybe not reported as much. And when you had people in South Africa sort of saying, well, you know, swastika is banned in Germany, so therefore you should ban the South African flag. And they'd say, well, are you comfortable banning the hammer and sickle here as well? Objection! And they would say, no, 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 no. It's a wonderful symbol of liberation in South Africa. Uh, <laughs> Means of production. <laughs> well, I think uh, Mork just got fact-checked. Um... <laughs> no, but so, so I've got a, I actually had another question. So you you mentioned earlier on there, like the case that you had, that you dealt with, like when the, the issue about the guy calling, you know, making the remarks about gay marriage, right? So uh, he got found guilty by for hate speech, correct? Yes. But the, you said the measurement was that they actually, like, they would go and get a psychologist to measure, for example, the emotional pain that someone would experience. Now, my question would be, say, for example, in the case of Penny Sparrow, right? She said, da -da -da, she related people on the beach to, to animals. Like, how do you do that? Because I'm sure, again, correct me if I'm wrong, they didn't go randomly pick, you know, a thousand people, have them go to a psychologist and go like, do you feel emotional pain when someone makes a reference to this, right? Yeah, so what's interesting is, um, I think the view now is that Penny Sparrow's case was wrongly decided. So she's held liable on the grounds of hurtful speech, 
quite explicitly. Yeah. Um, it relies on a prior case called Hasselman, where someone referred to someone else as a, I think as an ape or a gorilla or a monkey. Um, and uh, they, there was a debate for a long time about how to interpret the legislation. It basically said uh, hate speech is uh, hurtful speech, harmful speech, incites harm. There's no and or an or in it. Um, and so there was a view, well, we can interpret it to, to read or, and so merely hurtful speech would be sufficient to have hate speech. And that's how Sparrow was held liable. Um, what the Kamala case did was explicitly overturn that and say that you must read in ands, um, and the constitutional court chucks out hurtful speech. So um, as much as the case that I think when everyone thinks of hate speech, I think of Penny Sparrow, um, an honest court trying that case now could not find hate speech. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, because like when I think when it happened, I was I looked at it going like, you know, it's it's wow the leap to make that leap going well, the intent is how do you how do you read someone's mind because they're going like the 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 analogy of going like hey these like if you see kids playing on a jungle gym ah kids are acting like monkeys or something like that right or you have to see a bunch of kids being messy because I go to my friend's house they have kids like ah oh, these. They, they call their children baboons because it's just like litter everywhere. They're just messing. So like, like how would a court be able to infer or like read the mind, establish that the intent of her was to be, to be racist? You know, what did they go and look at previous statement that she's made and go like, maybe she's racist. But again, you did say that it was kind of wrongly. Yeah. Yeah. It's wrongly decided, but you're right. There's this problem of saying, well, when we're trying to divine your intent, we're not supposed to ask you what you're intended um, on the hate speech test. We look at the words on their own. Um, so we don't go and look at other things that you've said necessarily. We look at the words on their own. We look at the context in which you said them. Um, so that gives us some sense of what the words could mean. Um, it's not clear to me that this stuff is applied well. Um, so for example, what the Constitutional Court does in Kualani is it imports this international law standard. It says, okay, you've got to look at the identity of the speaker. So are they a powerful person? Is this a politician? Is this a nobody? You know, um, is there a likelihood that harm will result from the words? Um, what are the conditions in which they said this? Was it you know, done uh, in a mass way or was it a private communication? Those are all things that are supposed to be taken into account and they're you know, not really taken into account um, uh, as well as one would expect in some of the litigation. But uh, if... If let's say like I was chatting or I was like, like Mark was, uh, Mark was over at my house. Okay. And then, um, I said, yo, this little girl of mine is like a monkey man. And he just happened to be recording it, whether audio or video. And then he tries to take me, like he betrays me. He hates me. You know, the podcast didn't do as well. He's hated me ever since. And now, um, he tries to take me to the human rights commission or whatever case and takes me to court or whatever. Um, what you're saying is they would look at the whole context, like where I was, who I said it to, blah, blah. And obviously the court would rule that I was, I didn't have intent to be racist. I was, I was talking and it was an, a term of endearment in a way, to, yeah. or, or it was like um, a pet name or whatever you want to call it, or, or not even a pet name, like just a joke. Like, you know, they would, they would yeah, see it that way. Right. Well, okay, so there's what the law requires and there's what will happen in practice. So obviously there's a concern that our courts aren't applying the law properly and that context is being shoveled out, that uh, looking at you know, what the words actually mean isn't what's happening, that there's political pressure. Um, so those are all concerns. A good example um, 
in German and French, the word cabbage uh, has different meanings. The one it refers to someone as like, um, like my little baby cabbage, like a term of endearment, and the other one it's this person's an idiot. Okay, right. so you know the same same referent has very different meanings depending on the language in which you use, right? So that's got to play a role in determining you know what someone means. Um, I do think you can use coded language. I think you can um, say things that are like really abusive um, or or a, a kind of dog whistle to have people killed. So, for example, in Rwanda, you know, referring to people as cockroaches had a certain kind of connotation to it. Um, it's not clear that that connotation always travels. So, you know, here in South Africa, for example, Kenny Kunani referred to Julius Malema as a cockroach. And he said what I meant was when I was a kid, you know, he says he's a frog and a cockroach. You know, I would have um, cockroaches eating my food and I would brush them away and they were an irritant. It's not clear that there's any Rwanda reference in the speech. Um, that that's sort of top of mind for him. Um, and Kunani was held liable for hate speech. It's matters currently on appeal. Um, so, yeah, there is a sense in which um, our law has been clarified for you know the last year or so, um, but its implementation is all over the show. And yeah. I think you know onlookers look at it and go, I have no idea how courts get to these outcomes. Yeah. So, so I mean, I've got another example of like, so I mean, by the way that you're explaining it, it kind of sounds like it's hit and miss, but it seems a bit better uh, formulated as, as to what the the sort of overall legal perspective is. It doesn't seem as bad as, and I give you an example of a of a court case was. You, I don't know if you're familiar with the Count Dankula, Count Dankula case where the pug dog. I mean, for example, if that had to happen in South Africa because of the context of comedy, it would, it wouldn't have. He wouldn't have been prosecuted. So, technically, you're saying that the British or the Scottish legal system is like it's a bit more hectic on hate speech than it is in South Africa. Yeah. So we we do find that um, the Americans are probably the most permissive legally of speech. Um, although culturally, I think it's become very hard to say things that are slightly offensive and it's, your career can be ruined. Uh, you know, if you make a claim there are only two sexes, for example, you know, that could be the, the last thing you ever say while gainfully employed. Uh, whereas in South Africa, well, there are talking, only two sexes, so let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can say it in that time, I don't think anyone cares or thinks anything of it. Um, but wait yeah, for but, it. Wait for it, Mark. Wait for <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, I say the Americans give very strong legal protections, and the Europeans less so. So they're more restrictive of speech. You you find cases of people being um, uh, investigated in the UK for things they've said yeah. on Facebook, and you've also got a state with resources. So I think in one year there were like eight hundred people, you know, got uh, door knocks from the cops saying, "Hey, you said this thing on Facebook. You know, we, we're investigating you." Um, whereas in South Africa, when it happens, it's pretty rare. I mean, uh, I remember the. If you look at a case, a legal case, you'll see it as a case number. And normally it's case number, you know, 51,732 of the year. I was involved in three equality court cases which were reported as one, two, and three. Um, so it's very rare. Um, oh, wow. It's not something, not something that happens very often. Um, they just, when you when you hear about them, you know, they tend to get, you know, televised and publicized and there's a lot of discussion about them. Yeah, it is sort of a, a rare a rare thing that happens. We may find that if the hate speech bill becomes a, a law, that you'll then have this weapon that's used to intimidate people, to arrest people. I mean, you already have a situation um, where the journalist Karen Morn was uh, prosecuted by Zuma in a private prosecution, basically in an effort to silence her. Um, Zuma has uh, lost that case but is, you know, sort of seeking further appeals. And it's basically a way of, you know, trying to terrorize the press. 
Um, and so you might very well have that concern if the you know, hate speech bill ever becomes an act. Um, and there are some serious concerns with that law. But it is interesting that civil society has played quite a firm role in trying to um, stop it being passed or trying to improve it so that it's not as pernicious you know, as earlier drafts have been. So where is it now? Is it like almost accepted? Is it like towards the end of its editing? What, where, where is it now? It's passed through the National Assembly um, and it's gone through to the uh, National Council of Provinces. Um, so we have, uh, like in the States, you have the House and the Senate. We have a similar system to that. But of course, because we have single party dominance, you know, you don't really have much pushback. I think what's happening is some people in, in the provinces are looking at it and going, hold on a sec, there's implications for my speech. I think it's interesting that the EFF haven't pushed back against it because I, I would imagine that uh, they could find themselves imprisoned um, if it would be passed. They might take the view that they think the system is so rigged that we'll always get away with it. Um, but that's a gamble. You never know who's going to be in power in 10 years' time. Um, and having that kind of legislation floating around could be a weapon that's used against them. Could, could if someone, like, let's say, for example, the DA uh, wins the elections or whatever, okay, uh, can a new government or a new person who's governing the country, can they, uh, for lack of a better term, delete acts? Yeah, of course. Um, and one would hope that... Um, if you did have a moon pack coalition, that the first thing that they would do is pick out all the bits of terrible legislation that have been floating around and repeal them. Um, you repeal it in a similar way that you do enacting it, so you take a vote. Um, this is what happened at the end of apartheid. A whole bunch of really pernicious laws were repealed because of a change in government. Okay, cool. So in other oh, sorry, words, I just, go vote. Uh, I just wanted to make uh, actually tell you because I was watching that uh, I was watching a change my mind video, Stephen Crowder video today about hate speech, and literally in the video he refers to. Um, I think it was in 2019 he made the video where there was something like 3,500 cases of in the UK where people were prosecuted for hate speech things, you know, saying something on Facebook, saying something on Twitter. And we've seen videos of people rocking up at someone's door and stuff. But I have, a, I have, I have one other question I wanted to ask you, which is it's kind of a philosophical question about the sort of the concept of the law in South Africa. So how can South African law be considered just and legitimate when it allows the state to legally discriminate against most of its citizens based on the concept of race within BEE? I mean, it, it, it's almost like it feels like it's contradicting. There's a, there's a legal system that allows this to happen. And yet, you know, this other, op, other part of it, it was like, is the court contesting, is the constitutional court is, is, is fine with that when that sort of a contradiction of our sort of constitutional right as to be equal under the law, to not be judged by your race, but yet that exists and the law finds it's, it's fine. And then it, it feels like this contradictory sort of position that our legal system has by, you know, having these two things. Yeah, there's undoubtedly a tension in that. As I say, section one enshrines this value of non-racialism. Section nine deals with equality before the law, but also talks about having measures that could redress the wrongs of the past. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is that there's this balancing act that's happened to try and take that stuff into account. Um, now, what's, I, I take the view that particular individuals who suffered an injustice due to apartheid um, should have some corrective measures to advance them. I just don't think you can do that on the grounds of racial clustering. So first of all, because you've had a massive passage of time, you've got 30 years, um, I think there's a huge difference between someone who was discriminated against 
during the course of apartheid who wasn't able to marry the person they wanted to live in the area they wanted to get a job of their choosing versus someone who was born uh, in 2000 and is now 23 um, and was born sort of you know in a constitutional democracy they're just in different places um, so I don't think that we should treat people as um, tokens for a type um, yeah. as interchangeable with each other um, and so one hopes that uh, our law develops in that manner. There's been some debate around the recent BE legislation and the regulations, which has pretty hard race-based quotas that strike me as unconstitutional that yeah. necessarily would cap the number of people who are allowed to work in the private sector um, based on their race. Um, it's the sort of thing that makes uh, Fufut smile, I imagine. You know, we think that... Yeah, no, but that... That's exactly correct. Yeah, it feels like it's just the pendulum has kind of gone from the one end where this completely racist sort of national party apartheid South Africa. It's just sort of and it just it it just gets worse and worse and worse to the other side. It's like the ANC are now just it's it's just weird. It's like does, does that just happen throughout history where it, the pendulum just slicks one way to the other way? It's just the extremes each and every time. I suppose what you might find is that when you're the underdog, you use moral language and you say. These laws are unjust, and any moral person would never countenance laws like this. When you're in power, uh, you know you might use moral language another way, which is we've been hard done by, and so we need special rules, you know, to kind of keep us keep us going. Um, and you had Afrikaners doing this as well, right? So they would say we were treated badly by the British, and so we need to have special protections for our people. Um, you know, and the, the worry is when you're running a grievance politics game, you wind up in a society that's continually causing new and new grievances, that you want to move to a state of genuine equality. Um, there's also just vicious power play going on with the ANC, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not a matter of, like, we need to justify this. It's just, like, what yeah. are you going to do about it? Um, How do you stand power? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so I have a question uh, because I think this is really going to be interesting. So, you know, we used previous example. We know of examples of people in South Africa who have used the K word. They've either gotten severely punished, both by society and by the law. Now, usually, or not usually, um, you know, in these cases that we know that have gone viral, it's a white person saying it to a black person. But what if it's a black person saying it to a black person? Does that still amount to hate speech? Well, we must distinguish between hate speech and other kinds of prohibited speech. For example, uh, if you look at Vicky Momberg's case, you had a criminal urea situation where she sort of used it in an abusive manner and was held liable for that. Uh, the K-word has been viewed as a criminal urea since the 80s. Um, uh, there is a case um, of uh, a black person calling another black person by that term, and they were held liable. What? Yeah. Okay. I can't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't happen. I thought black people couldn't be racist. <laughs> but, All right, so, well, that's sorry. good to know. That's good to know. I, 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 have, I have a question on this on the criminal juror thing because like I found the the language, and this is that that one specific word, dignity. You know, like what you know, what your dignity. I always think of uh, Stan's dad in South Park where he says integrity, but it's the whole vibe of dignity. It's just this this very broad term that can mean anything is like if your dignity, like, you know, if I disres you disrespect it or something like that, therefore I can sue you. It's, it, it, it feels weird and just sounds strange that there's this law as if I offend your dignity, therefore you're liable for criminal injury. I, 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 so first of all, I think it's useful to think about it. In other words, let's say you have the, 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 the black person calling another black person by the term. 
Okay, yeah. you might think they it might not demonstrate that they hold an animus to a whole racial group, but it does show that they have an intention to demean this person. Okay, yeah. um, and so that's why they're held liable under criminal injury as opposed to hate speech. Um, we do recognize uh, dignity and reputation in our law, and I think a lot of places do with regards to defamation. So, for example, if I say uh, Joe is a child molester, or you know uh, he's the world's world's worst comedian. Um, we can say, well, these things have affected his reputation. And then there's a question of, okay, well, am I allowed to say both or only the one? It makes a difference whether it's false or not um, and whether it's the expression of an opinion. So, for example, in the when you're evaluating someone like, I don't like this person's art, we want to say that it's important that you're entitled to express opinions, even if it does affect the person's reputation, they can counter dialogue it. But when you say something false, like Joe's a child molester, you know, we want to say that's affected his reputation in quite a severe way, and he should be able to sue because of it. Um, oh, okay. on, on dignity, there's different ways of understanding it. Our courts grappled with the idea. So the one is it's about well-being. So in other words, your emotional state, um, you know, your reputation, um, what makes you, you know, do well in the world. And the other one is that it's about your autonomy. So your ability to, to lead a life of your choosing. And those things are different. Sometimes you sort of see the word dignity, you know, scattered on things like tomato sauce, um, and it's not really doing any real work. And so I understand why you have a concern about it. Um, I happen to run a philosophy show called Brain in the Vat. Um, and we've done many conversations about trying to come to, grab, to grips with these things. And we had an expert on dignity come along on the show. We've done lots of episodes on free speech and hate speech and open inquiry. So most of our guests are American academic philosophers. Um, we recently made the New York Times because um, one of our what? guests appearing on the show um, was... Um, told that he wouldn't be allowed on his campus, and he hasn't been allowed on his campus for a year and a half, for his own safety, because the Americans know you can't interfere with someone's job because of what they say, because um, you're entitled to you know, express your ideas in an academic setting. Um, but they they thought that it would be dangerous for him to be on campus. And so that story is at the New York Times, and he's currently litigating to be allowed back on. What, see what South Africans point? do. See what South Africans do. You see, this is the problem. This is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh man sorry mark uh, Mark. I, no no sorry that. that was that wasn't uh one of the weinstein uh brett Wein, that was what not brett weinstein no no i guess uh, it's Stephen. um uh, so if you do a search for the kirshner controversy the episode with him is on sexual taboos um and it is controversial material and so we talk in some detail about um you know what kinds of sex acts are immoral or disgusting or should be illegal um and he ruffled some feathers in that. Um, but the idea with the show is that we think it's important to be able to have open conversations with people that we disagree with. My yes. co-host and I, Jason Werbelow, always say that we agree on almost nothing, um, except for this idea that it's important to have conversations. And so even if we disagree with each other, we're able to do that very politely. And with our guests, we try and you know adopt positions that uh, counter their views, even if we privately agree with the guests, because we think one way to find out what's true is to clash swords. Yes. Yeah. And I still haven't been invited on that show. And he's been, yet yeah, Mark's been on my shows. Like, so when you get a PhD in philosophy, you're very welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go for it, dude. Go for it. I, I mean, I personally love philosophy. I think I got into, I mean, this is back before, I don't know if you know Stefan Molyneux. Um, I started, I, 2014, I think I started watching him and, you know, got introduced to a lot of people. I mean, and this is something quite, I, I remember watching, seeing Aaron Sritz on there, give an explanation about the, the concept we were talking about earlier, where you go like, you've got this sort of repeating of history where it was like, 
the, the Afrikaners because, you know, if you look at the context of what happened in 1880 or something like that, the Slag for Butrefeer when they killed people, those same people were like 40 years old, you know, when the new government, so they had this this hate of, of people because of a race, because of what happened to them. And now you've just got the repeat of that going the other way. And like in 30, 40 years time from now, we're going to have the marginalized white people get back into power and it's just going to happen all over again. I hope not. But, you know, like it, he put that into context and it was like, wow, it's just like just looking at history and understanding the context of how close these things happen to each other. It it changed your mind about how how, you know, why these people maybe did what they did, why they had this hatred towards people of a race, you know, like make me understand why would someone just pass these laws? Or I mean, again, it was the British who implemented segregation, but the Afrikaner sort of government kept it there. And from their point of view, it was a good reason to keep it there. Yeah, Ernst put in the hard yards and got a PhD. So um, he'll be- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, very, okay, so, so we're going over time. And uh, so, sorry, sorry, Mark. I know you're a very busy guy. You know, lies have, built by the six-minute increments. So now just you're in the second send me an invoice. Uh, I won't pay it, but send it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, add it to my tab. Um, so, where where do we stand, boys? Like, let's just get to the to the thing here. Like, does hate speech hate? Sorry, does hate speech exist in terms of? I, I guess I'm kind of answering my own question because like we have laws, we have a hate speech bill that's about to come into into play here. But I, I, I feel that it does. I feel that people should be able to defend their dignity, should be able to defend uh, if they feel that, if they really feel, and you can prove it in court that this person really went through a traumatic experience. They uh, maybe, I don't know, really got some hectic emotional damage from it. Uh, maybe they got depressed. I don't know. Uh, or maybe it just like it really invicts some kind of emotion within them when they hear certain terms or when someone said something. Uh, and, and some people are tough. Some people you can say a lot of horrible things to. I mean, I say a lot of horrible things to Mork on the show and he takes it like a champ. So, I mean, there's that too. So, but the point I'm getting at is I do think that in some cases, in each situation, which I think has been made clear by Mark Oppenheimer tonight, is that each situation is different. Each situation needs to be taken under a microscope and completely understood from almost all angles, if possible. And in that light, provided that we have a government and a law system that can implement it well, I would say that hate speech does exist. That's my I would I would jump in. I got like I think I think it's a very slippery slope. I mean, I think the the context of what's happening, if you can see, like like you know, Mark, like you pointed out, in America, it's almost like it happens privately in the private sector. Society does it, which is far worse than what happens here. I mean, people lose their jobs. You get it's 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 a complete shit show. But the, I like their legal system of the law is not going to come after you. I would prefer if our legal system went more that way. I would you know. It's like the whole vibe of like if you swing your arms and you hit somebody, then that's that's where the law should step. And the same with hate, with with like incitement to violence, I- imminent violence. If I'm calling a mob and go, listen, go kill this person, or like, here's five hundred bucks, Mark, will you shoot Joe? 
and it happens like they're that but i think other than that it's like it, it should end there that should be the line because like you said from the beginning of time beginning of history like minority movements the gay rights uh suffragettes everything came from people being able to say stuff they weren't allowed to malcolm x you know all of that like slavery uh segregation you know everything came from that part where a small minority or a, minor, a population was allowed, to, was allowed to say things. And I think limiting that would, it would have disaster effects. And if you look at like using the, the pug dog Count Dankula example, I mean, I mean, that's just a complete gross violation where like the court goes, context doesn't matter. And that's just the beginning of it. It's like, it's just getting worse. So I would, I would prefer to remove it. I think, yeah, that, that's my position on it. Sorry, I want to add to what you're saying there, or I, like I want to add to what I said earlier. Like, I'm not saying that there should be a limit to because you reference like Malcolm X and stuff like that. That should be allowed. It, but if you get to the point of Hitler where you're saying, you know, oh, we or you're like, you know, telling your a population like Jews are the problem, for example, or a specific race is the problem. That's where I draw the line. And I'm like, well, I think some kind of authority needs to step in and make sure that that doesn't happen again. However, if it's someone who's on a soapbox on a corner of a street saying like, yeah, no, the government's the problem. We got to band together, blah, blah, blah. But they're not inciting violence. They're just giving an opinion about whatever. That's fine. Like that should be allowed. That's kind of where I'm at. A quick, just a quick question. So, for example, would, I mean, because what Hitler did was similar to what we, we had a previous discussion where we went like, it didn't just begin with, listen, let's gas the Jews. It started with, they're the problem, they're the problem, look at them, they own the stuff. Now, the same thing is, are you saying, this is a question, Joe, are you saying that we should try and stop stuff like that? Because that's already happening in the context of, if you look at, if you look at the entire world, Western civilization towards ending whiteness, stop being white, da 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 da, you've got that across education, across media, across everywhere. I mean, that was maybe five years away from, that's what was Hitler was doing. It's the exact same thing. So are you saying we should curb that? That should be considered hate speech or is that still free speech? It's, it's difficult because like context matters, right? So like, yeah, um, that's a very good question. Mark. Because you wouldn't be able to say any of those things about, about black people, right? You couldn't say, like, we need to end black thinking. We need to end blackness. I mean, like, you would get, like, roasted over the coals. Like, it's, it's the end of you. But somehow yeah. that is societally accepted. They teach it at college, and it's, it's insanity. But, you know. But, so okay, like, but do you think that should be banned then? No. Okay. So you might, just to give you some clarity on this, you might think that it's a bad thing when you start denigrating people on the grounds of their race and their sex. But if there's no call to action, you've just got the propagation of hatred, you might think, well, the best way to deal with that kind of speech is with more speech, um, with kind of dialogue, that you try and change people's minds. That allowing people to say hateful things uh, exposes them and it gives you a sense of what other measures you need to address it. Once it tips over, so you're not just vilifying the group, but you're calling something to happen to them, that's why you might want some you know, additional regulation. Um, now, on the social level, you say in the States, you've got a society that you know, provides very strong legal protection for speech, but you've had um, this social mania where people are you know, canceled and you've got a, um, as you say, a move to sort of run a race-based agenda in education. Um, and the question is, you know, how do you deal with that? And you might think it's just going to be this, this messy environment that eventually sort of self-regulates through enough 
people changing their minds and working out what speech they'll tolerate. You know, you find that wokeness isn't always in constant ascendancy. It goes through periods where people think it's the most wonderful thing and then it sort of falls out of favor. You know, um, I think people have claimed peak wokeness quite a few times over the last decade. You know, it is one of those things that manages to rear its ugly head quite often. But uh, countering it um, with more, uh, more speech and better ideas seems like the better route to my mind. Totally. So you're, you, so Mark, you're like a free speech absolutist. Almost. No, I mean, I think if we had to rank ourselves in terms of, you know, um, where we protect speech, um, you know, there's the true absolutist who says, um, you know, even when you're paying for the assassin and calling him to do stuff, it's just words, man. Um, I, I don't fall in that category. I think everything walked out. I do want pretty strong protections for speech. Um, maybe I'd admit of more limitations than Mock. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I think maybe we'll, we'll debate a little bit about, like, I, I think the Constitution kind of gets it right, for example. So I think when you're advocating hatred against one of those groups and you're inciting harm against them, that's a good reason to hold you liable. You know, and that harm is different to violence. Um, but uh, but I'm I'm not going to say, in other words, on the stuff that's merely offensive, I'm going to say it's protected. Okay. So... Respect. I guess hate speech does exist then. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, though, it's, it's, it's been a very fascinating and interesting conversation. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for giving up some of your time uh, to chat with us. Um, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I'm comfortable with my view on this, on this topic. I think we all are. I think we're all, you know, but it was very interesting. And, and thank you for also giving us a lot of insight into how the law works, how the hate speech, all that stuff uh, works. Um, I think, I oh, wait, think wait, also I had, the viewers had, also enjoyed it. I had one like, last question for you. It's super short. You probably can't answer it because of the, on a scale of one to 10, and one being the cutest little kitten in the world, and 10 being like either Hitler or Stalin, how authoritarian do you think Julius is? You can blink as an answer if you can't answer it. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. I'll tell you guys off the record. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do you think uh, you're going to win the case? Yes. <laughs> look! Look at that. He's 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 well, strong. Eh? He won't answer. Yeah. He's he's very strong. No, See, he's, the, he's good. No, because I was I was telling Joe this. I'm going like I'm against the sort of like the whole your entire case had me sort of as a libertarian believing that. At the same time, I was going like you know the only reason I want it to happen is I, I want that equality before the law. You know, I want there to be because it feels like it's unequal. It, you know, like I want them. If you're gonna, if everybody else is gonna get charged, then. You being a person and a person in specific power, I want them to go like, okay, cool. This is, unfortunately, you can't then. Well, that's why uh, Mark Oppenheimer was there in, when, when it went to the Supreme High Court of Appeal. And he was acting as the friend of, friend of the court, I think is the term, Mark. Yeah. Uh, where he argued, you know, that we need to keep things equal and blah, blah, blah. Just because Julius is a politician doesn't mean he gets favor, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing heavily what he said it was a very powerful um what's the term i'm looking argument. for it was not argument yes uh that 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 mark gave um which you can you can go see by the way i think on the fmf channel i think they put his section of the argument on there please maybe i'll link it in the in the description below and you guys can 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 have a listen to it um is there just just for shits and giggles man is there anything you can say about 
you know, juju. Ju- ju. Yeah, so the basically the bar rule is that um, I can give you an idea of what the cases I'm involved in are about, what the legal principles are. I'm not allowed to prognosticate about what the outcomes will be. Um, so that's why my uh, <laughs> restricted answers. Okay, and, but- and the matter is currently on appeal. So yeah, yeah. once the finality, I could go into some more detail about it. And I'm going to ask you questions and you can just stay, stay silent if you can't answer. Um, <laughs> um, do you think... Do you think it's a situation right now where if uh, EFF lose the appeal, then they're going to appeal it to the constitutional court and vice versa with AFRIFORM? Do you think that's going to happen? Um, I think we have to wait and see. Um, yeah, in other words, both parties would have appeal rights, whether they exercise them is a separate question. Mm, that's a very good lawyer answer. I like it. Yeah, you kept yourself in the clear there. Uh, <laughs> all right. Mark, I have kept you long enough, my friend. Uh, thank you once again so much for coming onto the show, being willing to chat to us about this stuff. I think once again, the audience probably learned a bit about how the law works, which is exactly what we wanted. And now we know a little bit more about how the hate speech situation works. Maybe we'll have you back on another in a, like a few weeks in the month's time. We can talk about defamation. I think defamation will also be a very interesting topic to get into because there is also a lot of confusion with that specifically. Uh, but if there's anything else, Mark, you want to say, like, you know, um, let people remind people again where they can catch you, uh, your YouTube channel, all that stuff. Yeah, so if you're interested in the philosophy work, check out Brain Nevat. If you're interested in litigation, um, my personal channel, which is just Mark Oppenheimer on YouTube, um, has a playlist of most of the cases I've been involved in that were televised and other public appearances. So you can watch the whole Kill the Boer case. You can watch the appeal. Um, you can watch the flag case. Um, there's other matters in the Constitutional Court that are all there. Excellent. Excellent. Mork, sign us off. Thanks so much, Mark. Uh, and thanks so much for all the viewers for watching. Remember to hit the like, hit the subscribe, and uh, we'll see you guys soon. Joe, as they always say, stay based. <laughs>